And is this working? <laughs> All right. I'm a little slow today. Well, guys, as you know, in this last year, a lot of Americans, a lot of people around the country did some major project on their home, one, one project or another. Did anyone in here do a project on your home this last year? Are you like landscaping or maybe an indoor project or you know, making the place look a little prettier than it was before. I know we did it at home, and uh, we, we, we kind of are uh, not quite ready to do it again this spring, but we last spring, we did a lot of work just making the place look pretty and welcoming and inviting because, hey, we were spending a lot of time at home, right? And once you start spending a lot of time in a place, then you know you've got to make it as good as you can. So instead of leaving, we're staying in, so we want to make the place look beautiful and welcoming. But of course, whenever you do a project like that, even if it's not too big, you've always got to do what? You've got to count the cost, right? You've got to find out, this project that I'm starting, will I ever be able to finish it? And, you know, when we get excited about something in our home, or when we get excited about something in the Lord... Sometimes we just, we want to go. We want to go and get started, and we don't want to wait too long to do it. And the thing is, whether it's a project at home or whether it's this calling that we've been talking about the last few weeks, this mission that God has given you, this purpose that you have in your life that's specific to you and specific to your family or specific to your church, then we need to take time to assess, is this something that we can complete? Is this something that we can do all the way through. You know, think about uh, if you, some people get excited about, you know, serving meals to the homeless. And, you know, some folks here, and, and Adrian, who's not here today, have been involved in serving lunches on Boston Common uh, during, during different times of the year. And you imagine if you started something like that, and then you realize maybe six weeks in that, that you don't have the, the time or the energy or the financial resources to continue it, but now you've got all these people who are kind of counting on you, depending on you, expecting to be able to receive in this way, and then that opportunity's gone because you didn't count the cost. Or even if you just get excited about starting a small group, you know, Becca was talking about how the small group uh, has had an impact on her life already in just the few weeks that she's joined, and, and I hope that all of you who are in a small group are getting that same benefit. If you're not, let us know. We want to help you get into one. But... What if you start a, a, a group and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, you can't keep up with it because your workload at the office is too high and so then it, it falls apart. You know, and, and then people are affected and you're affected. You know, no one, wants to, um, no one wants to actually stop doing what they start, what they get excited about doing because it kind of can feel like a failure. It can feel like a letdown and you might feel guilty or even some shame about it and no one likes that. But you know, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells us that if we want to be his disciples, we have to be willing to give up everything. To give up everything. He literally says in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 14, that, that you need to hate your father and your mother. You need to hate your wife and your children, your brother and your sister. And then he says, you have to hate your own life or you cannot be his disciple. Now, many of you here today have been in church a long time. 
And when you read a passage like that, or when you hear me talking about it, you're already doing some theological calculus in your head. You're already like, you know, doing some conversions and carrying the one and figuring out how this doesn't mean what he says it means, right? Because you think surely Jesus doesn't mean you have to hate your wife and children, right? It can't mean that. Surely he's being hyperbolic. You know, Jesus, Jesus means, um, you know, maybe in comparison to your love for me, your love for me is so great that in comparison, the love you have for your family looks like hate, right? And, and maybe you've heard that before. And these internal responses, they might help us get a, an accurate picture of what Jesus is saying, right? That maybe with some adjustments or some tweaks, we're getting at the truth of what Jesus is trying to communicate. But these theological gymnastics or theological calculus, they can actually hinder us and hurt us in regards to getting to the emotional point of what Jesus is getting at. Jesus meant to shock and disturb his audience. He meant to make them feel uncomfortable. He meant to make them question, would I really do that for Jesus? And in fact, for those listening to him that moment there in the, uh, the Judean hillside, uh, countryside out there 2,000 years ago, it probably would have meant at least the possibility of someone losing their parents, losing their wife and children, and losing their brothers and sisters if they were to follow Jesus. If they were to accept Jesus as Messiah, it might mean that they lose their family. It really might. It's probably more akin to the stories we hear about Muslims and Islamic countries who reject Islam and accept Christianity and their parents literally uh, uh, kick them out of the family. Or their spouses literally leave them. And their children actually um, scorn them and reject them because of their faith. You know, it's not like what we see in the United States today where even in New England, even here where the frozen chosen gather to worship the Lord, even here it's relatively easy to choose to follow Jesus. So while most of us may not need to uh, follow Jesus at the expense of having a relationship with our family, some of you do know the very real cost of being a Christian in a family where not everyone is. Some of you know what it's like to be married to a spouse who doesn't believe what you believe. Some of you know what it's like to be the only child in your family who knows the Lord. Um, some of you know how hard it can be to feel alone in your own family. And so you know about the, the difficulty of explaining to someone else why you want to go to church every Sunday and why you want to be in a small group once a week. Uh, or those difficult conversations about why you want to give financially to something that they don't care about. You, you get what that's like. Some of you may even know the sadness of pain of being ridiculed for your faith by someone that you care about. There can be a big cost to following Jesus, right? There can be. And if we too quickly resolve the tension that Jesus' statement is getting at and say something like, well, I need to put Jesus first, which is true. And that's part of what Jesus is saying. But if we just run to that without actually contending with the pain and the hardship and the tension and the temptation that comes with following Jesus, we might actually set ourselves up for a pretty big failure. Why? Well, because 
if we have not really wrestled with whether we're willing to pay the cost, then when the cost comes, when the difficulty comes, we might decide that it's not worth it. But often when we decide ahead of time that it is worth that cost, we're willing to see it through to the end because we've gone in it with open eyes. So today we're going to talk about counting the cost. We're going to talk about going into this with our eyes open and saying, what is it that Jesus really is asking of me today? What is it that Jesus really wants from me in my life? What does it mean truly to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And am I willing to pay that price? Well, when we look at the book of Nehemiah, we see that uh, there is this big project in front of God's people, and they have to, they have to figure out how they're going to pay the price to get that project done. If you've been with us, you know the story in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is living outside of Judah, outside of Israel. He's, he's hundreds of miles away in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, serving the king Artaxerxes. And he finds out that the walls around Jerusalem are still in ruins over 140 years after they had been destroyed uh, by the Assyrians. And so he goes to the king, and the king asks him, what can I do for you because you're so sad? And he says, I want to go to my homeland and restore the city of my ancestors. And the king grants him permission to go, and he gives him access to supplies. He gives him his protection. But when Nehemiah arrives, he needs to enlist the people to do the work. In chapter 3 of Nehemiah, we see this great example of the people responding in faith. They respond in, in excitement. Um, you, get, you get the story. I'm not going to read all of chapter 3 to you, but you get a list of all these gates and all these sections of the walls and different people and different families are coming together, each to work on their section. You know, no one's responsible for the whole wall. We're just responsible for the section that God puts in front of us. And so literally, if you're... <coughs> For those who lived next to the fish gate, they worked on the fish gate. For those who lived next to the dung gate, they worked on the dung gate. For those whose houses were along the wall in between, they worked on the section of the wall by their house. Whatever God put before them was the work that they were to do. And you see, you know, all these lists of families and lists of names of people and priests and elders and ruler, um, officials in the city, and they all come together and they repair a section of the wall. So God's people have always known about counting the cost. This wasn't new to Jesus when he's preaching on the, on the countryside to, in the book of Luke. Uh, in fact, the people of God have always had to count the cost. If you look at the history of Israel, it's a history of strife. It's a history of challenges. It's a history of failures, but also victories. It's a history of God, as we said earlier, God continuing to come in and invite his people back when they go astray, but then they do the hard work of serving the Lord, whether it's through the, the work of the building of the temple, whether it's the, the offering of sacrifices, there's a cost there, whether it's going to war against Israel's enemies, whatever the case may be, you know, throughout history, and when you read these stories, you see that the people of God had to make tough decisions, like Daniel, who refused to bow down and worship a, a king 
instead of worshiping the king of heaven, the Lord, and he gets thrown into the lion's den. He's threatened with death. Of course, God protects him. He takes care of him. But some gave their lives to follow the Lord. There's always this counting of the cost. And so we see here that the people start with excitement, but then it gets difficult. In chapter 4, we read this. When Sanballat, and by the way, I know everyone knows who Sanballat is. I know you guys have been reading your, your Persian history in your spare time. But for the one or two who don't, this guy, he's a governor. He's a governor in one of the territories in the Persian Empire, just like Nehemiah is the governor of Judah. So the king makes Nehemiah the governor of Judah because he trusts him. So on some level, he trusts Sanballat, and Sanballat's also a governor. And, and he's one of the people who doesn't want Jerusalem to be strong again because that would mean he would be weaker. So he's opposed to the rebuilding of this wall. So he became angry and greatly incensed, it says in chapter 4, verse 1 of Nehemiah. He became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it a day? Can they bring these stones back to life from heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And then you almost imagine him saying, Please, not going to happen. It's not going to happen. These guys have bitten off way more than they can chew. And then Tobiah, who's also this you know, powerful guy in Ammon, he's an Ammonite, uh, he's right there at, at Sambalot's side, and he says, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. Can you guys relate to any of this? Have you ever felt like you've been mocked and ridiculed uh, for the things you're trying to accomplish for the Lord? Or maybe just in general. You know, it's, it can be hard. It can be hard to face those belittling words and to have the courage to keep going. And we're going to read in a little bit later that the people got tired. They were exhausted. They were running out of energy. You know, um, I know as we were working yesterday that some of you were struggling with your energy levels before you got here. And you worked anyway. You know, you, you, put, your, you put your back into it knowing that it was going to be hard. And I watched some of you need to take those breaks, which of course is encouraged. Um, but it's, it's hard to, to get to a job when you know before you start that you're already tired or you know that you're going to be tired before you finish. You know, it's hard. But the people, they didn't just give up. They didn't give up when they got tired. They didn't give up when their enemies came. And those enemies are real. I remember when I was younger reading the Psalms. You ever read the Psalms and David says something like, my enemies surrounded me on every side. I was despairing to the point of death. When I used to read that, I would think, I cannot relate to this. I don't know, I don't know any enemies that I have. I'd never have despaired to the point of death. But as I got older, hopefully a little wiser, definitely more experienced, and I began to see the, the reality of the enemy that we do have. 
that there, there actually is someone out there who would like nothing more than to see you dead. There is someone out there, quite a few someones out there, an army of someones out there who would do whatever they can to get in the way of you fulfilling your calling in the Lord. We actually have an enemy who hates our guts. And, you know, to be honest, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of someone not liking me that much. It's a little unnerving. But there we are. And there these people were. And there might be a time where just being a Christian in this country means that there will be people... Well, probably is already a time now when there are some people who will hate you simply because you're a Christian. But that may increase. We don't know. And I pray that it doesn't, but it may. We have to count the cost. You know, like Nehemiah, our enemy is constantly trying to drag us out into the open to distract us from our work, to expose us to danger. Look what happened here in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Um, it says that um, in verse 8, talking about Sanballat and Tobiah and these other groups, it says they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. You know, and they would actually invite Nehemiah to come meet with them so that they could ambush him and kill him. It says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet his threat. They prayed about it and they were vigilant. They prayed about it and they took action. You know, this is what it really looks like to count the cost. You know, I mentioned again, we had this work day yesterday. Some of us were dirty. Some of us were sweaty. Um, and we had a pretty good turnout. And I think Mabel was joking, hey, it's a good thing we've been doing this Nehemiah study because look how many people came. Beth, I think you said it felt like we had an army of people here doing the work. And, you know, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? When you, I, I remember talking to Beth earlier in the week and I think there had only been a few people who had, who had responded so far saying they were coming like five or something. Two, there were two people when we were talking as of yet. And, and Beth was, I could see it on her face. She was like, this is going to be horrible. And then I come out on Saturday morning and I see all these people and she has a very different countenance, right? She's encouraged because she has partners, because she has uh, people who are coming alongside to do this heavy burden, to lift this heavy burden together. And that's also part of counting the costs. You know, it's not just can you do the work, it's can you rely on the people around you to also work with you? Can the other people around you rely on you to work with them? You know, do we trust each other to be there together, standing in the gap when it's time to do the work? That's part of counting the cost. You know, but so, uh, you know, Mabel said, hey, it's a good thing we're doing this study. Look at the turnout. It's great. And, you know, it's not about making anyone feel guilty who wasn't here because, you know, maybe you couldn't come. Maybe you didn't know about it. Maybe you're not able to do that kind of work. Uh, I almost wasn't able to come because of other work that I had to do. Uh, so it's not about that. I mean, it's great if everyone shows up for a work day. But what's really more important is that as we look at our calling in the Lord, as we look at what it means for us, for this church, to live a life worthy of her calling, that, that we all experience this as an all-hands-on-deck situation. That whatever we can do, we do. 
And what we can't do, we know there's someone else who can, who can step in for us. And when they can't, then we step in for them. You know, this is a very uh, critical way. It's a critical uh, element of being the church of Jesus Christ, is that we really can be this unified team working and serving together. It might mean for some, just praying your heart out for the people in this church, the people that are around this church, for the, for the ministry that we do in here and out there. It might mean being a listening ear, being someone who's, who's there to hear of the hurt and hardship of the people right here that you care about and being able to step into pain with them, knowing that they'll step into pain with you. Uh, it, it might mean, well, and it will mean for all of us, it means giving financially uh, for our God-given calling right here in this location. You know, it takes, it takes money to, to reach the people in Dedham and Norwood and West Roxbury and Hyde Park and Roslindale and Milton and, and Westwood, Canton, wherever it is. It, it costs money. And not only that, but there, there's something about that investment of finances that helps us to invest our heart into the work that's going on. And you know what? Now, yes, now that these things are shifting, it means being present here again. And I know, and maybe some of you at home are eager to be here, uh, but I know for myself even, when we switched back to being in person, there was a part of me that thought, it's kind of nice to go to church at home. <laughs> it's kind of nice to not have uh, some of the extra requirements. Uh, but you know what? There's certain things that only happen when we're present together. There are certain things that we can only see, like we can only care for each other if we know what's going on. And so there is an invitation that we do need to come back. We can't be forever distanced. Uh, we've been doing it because it's been necessary, but it's not a long-term thing. So these are not small things. These are big. I mean, just those four things I mentioned, prayer, being present with one another emotionally and, and, and in our hurts and needs, being physically present and being financially consistent in our giving, those four things alone is a big calling. And that's not all of it. And I don't say that to scare anyone off, but Jesus says count the cost. He's not afraid to put up the big ask and say who's in, you know? Uh, when we keep looking in Nehemiah chapter 4 in verse 11, it says... Uh, his, the enemies were again threatening them. So in verse 10 it says, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot build the wall. And then the enemy said, knowing that they were starting to falter, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. So the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they'll attack us. These people were afraid. They were tired. They were afraid. They, they, I mean, really petrified. So Nehemiah says, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And I looked things over. I stood up and said to the nobles, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And I'm here to say, church, that do not be afraid. The Lord is great and mighty, and you do have to fight for your families. You do have to fight for your, for your wives, for your husbands. You do have to fight for your children. You do have to fight for your community. 
This is not a game. This is serious stuff happening. We have an enemy who is trying to destroy us, who's trying to kill us and put an end to our work one way or another. And he'll do it with the television just as quickly as he'll do it with disease, just as quickly as he'll do it with your sin, just as quickly as he'll do it with, uh, with a workload and your job that feels overwhelming. He doesn't care how he does it. He wants you off the job. But you've got to fight. And church, I'm here to say today, if we don't choose to fight, we will not win. Right? We won't win. We can talk all we want about the faithfulness of God, but what God is faithful in is helping the people who fight. Yes, when we turn away, He calls us back, but the people who choose not to come back don't live. This is just... This is just true. Yes, God empowers us and strengthens us for our work, but the people who choose not to work, they don't live. And not only that, the community suffers as a result. We have to be in it together. We cannot count this cost alone. Jesus says in Luke 14, where we were already, Anyone who does not give up everything, he has, cannot be my disciple. Church, don't run to the explanation. Don't jump to the theological calculus. Rest in the incredible weight of that statement. If any of you who does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple or she. If you won't give it all, you cannot be Jesus' disciple. If you won't pay the price, you cannot follow him. If you aren't willing to forsake your entire family, you won't belong to him. Verse 27 of the same chapter says, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Anyone who's not willing to take on the instrument of their own death cannot be my disciple. Now look, the theological calculus is not wrong. Most of you will not give your physical life for the Lord. But if we're not willing to give up our control of our life, <clears throat> if we're not willing to give up uh, uh, this tight ownership of the things we have, not realizing that they're really God's and we're just stewards, so He really owns them, we hold them like this and not like this. If we're not willing to let go of, of comfort and distraction for the Lord, what Jesus' strong words, what Jesus says is, you can't be my disciple. And I think we, we, what we're not saying is, you can't go to heaven. What we're not saying is, Jesus doesn't love you. But Jesus is saying, to be a disciple, it means these things. And not only that, uh, we see, both in history and in the word, that when we don't step up to the call, when we don't respond with a yes, he is willing to let us languish over here and work with someone else. This is, this is what, I mean, this is in the scripture. We see in the book of Revelation, Jesus, ha he, he tells certain churches, I'm taking your lampstand away, which I think means I'm taking the Holy Spirit from your church. Okay? And it's not just churches who don't have their theology right. Those ones he takes away, 
But there's ones who have their theology right, but they're not living a life manly in love and serving the Lord. He says, you lost your first love. So you got your theology, but you don't have me. And this is part of what it means to have him. Now, look, I know this is a strong message. It's a hard message. It's not, this isn't, this isn't the, uh, if you were coming here for lots of encouragement, there's some coming, but you haven't heard it yet, right? But here's the thing. The beauty of counting the cost. Everything we do, we count a cost, right? Everything you do means not doing something else. Everything you buy means not buying something else or not having that money anymore or not having that resource anymore. Every activity you partake in means that you don't have that time anymore, right? Everything we do, we count a cost. So why do we do things? Because sometimes you count the cost and it's worth it. It's worth it. So why do you spend, or not, you, I'm not sure what you did, but why might one spend thousands of dollars uh, to beautify their outdoor space? Well, because they're going to spend time there and it's worth thousands of dollars for them to have that beautiful space. Why would you, why would you uh, commit to a job on the other side of the country if you know you have to move your family? Well, you think that something from that job whether it's the salary or the passion that you have for the project, whatever it is will be worth it. So why would you be willing to give up your entire life to follow Jesus Christ? Because it's worth it. It's worth it. You cannot do, if you look at the actual math, we're talking about theological calculus. If you do the math, the equation always comes up where Jesus is greater than whatever else this thing is over here. Jesus is greater than comfort. Jesus is greater than money. Jesus is greater than job satisfaction. Jesus is greater than, I don't care what you put over here. I don't care what you put. And then I love this great math equation that Paul makes in Philippians. He says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you're living for anything else, dying is loss. But when you live for Christ, dying is gain. And I mean physical dying. I mean dying to yourself and your desires. I mean, I mean all kinds of dying in Christ is gain. Because Jesus says, if you lose your father or mother or brothers or sisters, I will, you will find even more in the kingdom of God. If you, lose your, if you lose financially for me, then you'll receive a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. And by the way, the kingdom of God doesn't start in heaven. It starts right here. So it's not that, oh, I'll die and go to heaven and then I'll have the resources I need. No, he's saying, I'm giving you resources now. I'm giving you family now. I'm giving you everything you need now. But that comes only for the people who are willing to give up what they have. It's kind of like this. Do any of you invest in the stock market? Why would you give thousands of dollars, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars? Some of you know I do financial planning. I have clients with millions of dollars that they give to companies. Why would anyone give millions of their dollars to a company? Their return is going to be greater than the investment. 
So look, the, more often than not, it's the people who wholeheartedly follow Jesus that find that they get what they desire the most. I would say universally, but I haven't met every person. But the trend, the, the general truth is, the people who are willing to give up everything for Christ find that they have what they desire the most, and the people who do not will lose what they desire the most. You will lose what you desire the most if, you don't, if you're not willing to give it up for the Lord. It's just, it's just the way it is. He says, those who live their lives, those who, sorry, those who uh, save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. This is just the way of the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that your husband or your wife or your family will come to faith. But to have a thoroughly committed disciple of Jesus Christ in the home will increase the chances. You know, I, I feel for a lot of you who are, who are married to unbelieving spouses, but I will say this. As much as there will be conflict about your involvement in the things of the Lord, in the end, they will see it. It will mean something. And it's going to be way more attractive than someone who's half-heartedly serving the Lord. And that's not to condemn or, or guilt trip anyone. That's just, that's just the way life is. That's just the way reality is. Right? No one gets really excited to join you in something that you only half care about. It doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to make a lot of money. Though God seems very pleased to prosper those people who are faithful with little by giving them more. It just seems to be the way it is. Um, I will say for us that uh, I can honestly say that we have given sacrificially to the Lord in our lives and the Lord has poured out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Some of them financial. Some of them, interestingly, the things that we would have spent our money on and didn't have to because the Lord was so gracious with them for us. Uh, we, we, do not live, we do not live within our means, not because we're in debt, but because God gives us beyond our means. It's amazing. But faithful with a little, He gives you more. Um, you know, I think of people who, who they have this idea that, oh, if I can get to a different place with a different group of people, then I'll serve the Lord faithfully. These aren't, this isn't, you know, this isn't, um, it doesn't resonate with me here whether it's a church or a, or a neighborhood or a, whatever it is. They're like, that's not how God works. When you're faithful where you are, He may or might, may not take you to a better place, but more than likely, He'll make the place where you are better. And so if you're wishing you were in a... Uh, I, I mean, I, maybe you're wishing you were in a different church. I don't know. Maybe you were wishing you had a different group of people to work with. But if you become more faithful then the church or the group or whatever will become more like what you want it to be because you're willing to be all in. Church, what I'm saying is that we, we, we have no longer uh, the time to be dipping our toes in the water. We don't. And we haven't. It's time to jump in. And if we're willing to do the hard work, despite all the difficulties, what we'll find is that we experience the all-surpassing joy of Christ. 
No matter what you're doing, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what the work is, no matter how, how hard it is, it means that you're going to have the joy of Christ when you go in all the way. Now, by the way, this is all predicated on what we've been talking about. You need to discern your calling. You need to, under, you need to de develop your passion and your understanding of God's will and His heart and what He's thinking. You need to build a team. Don't do it alone. That's what we're talking about today, doing it together with others. But then when you get that far and you get to the point where it's time to do the work, jump in. Don't hold back. Don't just test the waters. Go all in. It's kind of like you're, you're playing poker and you put all your chips on the table and you say, this is the hand I'm playing and I'm going to win or lose by it. And then trust the Lord. And you know what's great about the Lord? Because this is something we sometimes miss. If you lose the hand and, you're, and then you're, you know, and you feel like you've lost it all, Jesus is like, oh no, I got another pot for you. Let's do this again. It's just amazing how he does this. It's amazing. So the question before us that we have to answer, and you don't have to answer to me, but to the Lord, is... What am I going to do with the call you've given me, Father? What am I going to do with the mission you've given me, Jesus? What am I going to do with this purpose that you've placed in my life, Holy Spirit? And you know, one day you will stand before the Father and He will be asking you those questions. And it's, He's not going to ask you what kind of TV you have. He's not going to ask you what kind of car you drive. He's not going to ask you, uh, you know, how much you pursued... Um, I'm being totally random here, fly fishing. I don't know if anyone here likes fly fishing. Uh, or, or, or whatever it is. Or, you know, how many great meals did you have at restaurants? He's going to ask you, what did you do with the, with the talents I gave you? What are you going to do with the resources I gave you? Did you bury them or did you multiply them? Did you hide them or did you use them? When I gave you this call, did you answer it or did you not? And guys, it's so easy for this message right here, because this is a hard message. It's so easy for you to walk away and think, either I feel so guilty, I feel so ashamed, or Stephen's really putting on a guilt trip today, or he's really laying on the shame. But I want you to hear where my heart is in this and where the heart of Christ is in this. When Jesus went to the cross, we already mentioned this today. When Jesus went to the cross, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured its shame. God didn't prod him. The Father didn't prod him, cajole him. <coughs> he didn't beg him. He didn't uh, guilt trip him. But Jesus knew, if I do this, all of these incredibly wonderful things will happen. And if I do not, then horrible things will happen. Okay? That's just the reality. In your life, if you follow the Lord, incredibly wonderful things will happen. And if you don't, there will be tragedies. And when I say there will be tragedies, there's going to be hardship either way, but in the Lord, hardships are not tragedies. Meaning that you, you could lose anything in the Lord and it doesn't mean the end for you. 
But without the Lord, even some small things can become tragedies, relatively small things. And the problem is you don't only face those small things without the Lord, you face the big things too. But you have no resource. You have no grounding. You have no substance. And guys, we didn't even talk about, really, I mean, we just hit on it. We didn't even talk about the kind of opposition that will come if you make that choice. Because look, uh, if, you were an, if you were a general and you were facing an enemy and you had one platoon or one uh, army unit or whatever that's actually fighting you and you have another one that's watching TV, where are you going to send your resources? Where are you going to send your combatants? Where are you going to send the artillery? Where are you going to fire the weapons? At the ones who are fighting. The ones who are on the sidelines, you don't have to worry about. So if you've kind of been on the sideline and you step into this battle, you will receive fire, enemy fire. It will come. But what I'm telling you is that even when the enemy fire comes, the cost and the pain of that will be less than, than the, the cost of not getting in the battle. And the joy that you receive from that in Christ will be greater than the joy you could ever imagine by sitting on the sidelines. So it's worth it. The investment will pay off in spades, right? The dividend is high. So church, uh, just kind of skip through here. Uh, I just want to end with this takeaway here, if it will actually come up, I don't know. Can you just do that for me, Astra? Oh, there it goes. Uh, here's the thing. Whether from hard work or opposition, the cost of answering our call is worth the price. It is. And I, 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 I was going to say I dare you. I encourage you. But you know what? I, I dare you to do the math. Do the math. When Jesus says count the cost, it's not because he's, af- it's not because he's afraid you'll quit. He actually knows that you won't if you actually count the cost. Do you see that? He's not afraid that he's not going to be enough and that if you count the cost, you know, you'll run away. He knows he's enough. So if you do the math, you will get into the fight. If you do the math, you will commit yourself to fulfilling the calling because there is a joy set before us that makes it all worthwhile. There comes a day when you stand before the Lord and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And whatever emotions you have about being called a servant in this life, when you stand before the Lord and he says, says, well done, good and faithful servant, you are going to melt in joy. You are going to feel like that's the greatest thing that anyone has ever said to you, that your father is so proud of you that he tells you, well done. And you will experience such a profound sense of accomplishment and gratitude and, and the, like the healthy kind of, of um, self-esteem. Not the kind of self-esteem that our world you know, wants to throw at you. Like, oh, you're good just for trying. No, fine, you're good just because God made you. You're not good for trying. But when you, when you go through and you say yes to the Lord and God says that on the other side... That joy will be so great. And that joy doesn't have to wait. It does, you don't have to wait for that in heaven. It starts here because the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is here. So 
I'm going to keep going on if I don't stop. So I'm going to stop. Church, wherever you are today, if you're, if you're joining us online or if you're right here, um, this message, this message requires action. I'm not sharing this so that you'll understand something. I'm sharing this so that we will do something. We need all hands on deck. We need to jump in with two feet. And when you do, if we do, the blessings that God will pour out on you and on this church, you will not be able to imagine. There will be no lack of anything that we need. The more you expend for the Lord, the more he will provide. And I mean that in every possible way. I'm convinced and I believe that every lack we have now is because we've been holding back the little that we have. That we've been bearing things. We cannot do that anymore. All in. All hands on deck. Go for broke. And I, and I promise you, the Lord will not fail you. Right, let's pray. Lord, I, I stand here, I am afraid. I'm scared. I'm scared for two reasons. I'm scared because I don't know how we're going to respond. So I'm afraid that we won't say yes. But Lord, if we do say yes, I'm afraid because that means that we're going to have to do things that we haven't been brave enough to do before. So God, help us in two ways. One, give us the courage to say yes. Give us the courage to jump in. God, give us the faith. Give us the trust in you to be willing to say, I will give up my life to follow Jesus. And then, Lord, when we do that, help us to take the actions that we've been too scared to take. Help us to be willing to set aside our comfort or our security or whatever it is that we have so that we can pursue you 100% so that we can live out our calling all the way. God, help us to trust one another to be there when we need help. Help us to trust that your provision is, will be greater than our spending. And I don't mean just financial, but it includes financial. Help us to trust, Lord, that when our arms and legs are tired and our strength is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we don't see how we can rebuild this wall. God, remind us, like Nehemiah reminded them, that you are great and awesome. You are great and awesome. And spur us on to fight for our families, to fight for our children to fight for our spouses, to, spite, to fight for this community that is Fellowship Church and to fight for this community that is the, this, this region of New England that is hurting and desperate for churches that will answer the call. Not churches who will just be there, but churches who will live lives worthy of their calling in Christ Jesus. Churches who will hear the hard messages of counting the cost and say yes I've done the math and it works out. I'm in. We're in together.
Jesus, don't let us leave either this room or turn off our computers, screens, without having answered or at least begun to take seriously the question, will we answer the call? So God, I'm afraid, but I put it in your hands. I'm scared, but I trust you. In Jesus' name we pray.